I love the history of my people. We have a great respect for Mother Earth. Our law is not written in a book. Our law is written on this land. Our teachings are from this land. Our names, our songs, our language comes from this land. These rivers are just, just like the veins in your body. Everybody has a job to do. We would tell you the plants managed us. We're hearing your songs. This ground is made up of tens of thousands of generations of Vespers people. I love who I am. Hello and welcome to Land Water Justice, Wallawa Valley, Episode 1, The Wallawa Band. Howdy folks, I'm Jaden. Hey y'all, I'm Nia. What's up? It's Tati. There are many places we could start with the story of the Wallawa Valley, but... If we're going to be thinking about the unquiet spirits and the people that still exist in that place, as we have been these past few weeks, then I think it's best to start with the Nez Perce. Long ago, before contact, the Nez Perce were a salmon people. They lived in seasonal rounds following their first foods, which are the foods that presented themselves as what will sustain them throughout their lives as long as the Nez Perce promised to take care of them in return. They followed these first foods in seasonal cycles throughout the Columbia Plateau. Today we're talking with Nakia. He is the director of the natural resources for the Nez Perce Reservation. Nakia Williamson is actually the director of cultural resources for the Nez Perce tribe of Idaho, not the director of natural resources and he is heavily involved with the removal of the four Lower Snake River dams. In the time of uh, Titwa Titiaya, the animal people, before the Indian people were created on this land, the coyote said the Natitelwit are coming, the the Indian people are coming, the Natsoh, the Chinook salmon, stood up on our behalf and said he'll provide his flesh for us, and he'll come at the same year every time. The second one was Tapit Tawasin, or white-tailed buck, and he said this this poor being will have no fur and have no way to cover themselves. He can use my hide, he can use my flesh. We were imparted with responsibilities at that time, and those responsibilities still are on us today. We spoke to many indigenous leaders who impressed upon us the relationships the Nez Perce have with their first foods. We're waiting for you to come and harvest us. We remember the contract, and if you remember your contract, you're going to have your, your ceremonies for us to bring us back after you harvest and, and take our body. This is Roger Ammerman. He's a ethnogeologist, ethnobotanist, Native American cultural events organizer, artist, and bead worker, enrolled with the Choctaw Nation, but raised in Pendleton with the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. He's guiding us around the Wallawa Valley. So the plants know their role, but if that relationship is altered, diminished, or both those entities are incarcerated in some manner. Everything's off the boards now. The Nez Perce, or Nimipu in their language, have an intimate connection with the land. Their first food story guides a way of life that acknowledges and embraces humans' inseparable inclusion in this thing we call nature. In the Wallawa Valley, that meant winters spent in long tents camped out on the rivers in the warmer river valleys, and summers spent in the high, cooler, forested peaks. In 1730, the first major cultural shift to the Nez Perce came when Spaniards arrived and traded with them the horse. 
the Nez Perce people began using horses in 1680, not 1730, through trade with other western tribes such as the Shoshone. These horses came from Spanish colonists in the southwest. Very quickly, the Nez Perce became powerful and proud warrior horsemen that used their newfound four-legged animal companions to travel far and wider than they had ever done before, quickly becoming a horse people. They traveled to the plains, had conflict with the Sioux peoples and hunted buffalo, and were much more capable of traveling to far away trading places such as Celilo Falls. The Nez Perce traveled extensively by paths on land and by waterways and tributaries before they acquired the horse. The horse only expanded their already far-reaching range across the North and Midwest. You mentioned Celilo Falls, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of Celilo Falls as a meeting place. Yeah, so Nia, Celilo Falls was probably the greatest fishery in the Pacific Northwest, if not North America itself. Um, Celilo Falls sits on the Columbia River uh, just outside of the Dalles in present-day Oregon, and it was a large waterfall in the Columbia River that salmon had to pass over in order to reach their spawning grounds. Indigenous fishermen from all across the region came to Celilo Falls in order to fish, but more than that, they came to Celilo Falls to trade. And trading was the primary cultural activity happening at Celilo Falls. It was a place where almost every tribe of the Pacific Northwest met, gambled, traded, and fished. Celilo Falls was inundated when the Dalles Dam was built and the Columbia River was turned into a series of small lakes. Now let's get back to the, the Nez Perce. The Walwama Band, or the Wallawa Band of the Nez Perce, at the point when the story picks up, were under the leadership of a man... Uh, commonly called Old Chief Joseph. Old Chief Joseph was given the name Joseph by a guy named Spaulding, and Spaulding was a missionary who came to the Idaho Territory in order to convert the native people of the region. Uh, he largely succeeded um, when it came to the Wawama band of the Nez Perce, and that brought the Nez Perce to the table when it came to the Treaty of 1855, which established the original treaty boundaries of the Nez Perce Reservation. And at one time it was massive, including the Wallowa Valley and many other parts of Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. However, it quickly became clear that Congress had no intention of holding up its obligations on the treaty end and began slowly chipping away at what was the Nez Perce Reservation. I was just wondering about the process of the government kind of retaking the reservation land and how that worked? Thanks for the question, Nia. Perhaps what I should do to answer is let me explain the Treaty of 1855 a little more and treaties in general. So in the Treaty of 1855, the Nez Perce reserved for themselves two major things. The first is what we usually call the usual and accustomed clause. See, the Treaty of 1855 was essentially the United States forcing the Nez Perce to sell portions of their land. However, language was included in this treaty that allowed the Nez Perce to continue to fish, hunt, and gather in their usual and accustomed territories that they were ceding to the United States. These territories would be open for white settlement, but they would still be able to gather the resources that they had relied upon from those places. And during the 1855 treaty, the usual and accustomed clause and that language that was placed in there was first mentioned by Apaswahaik and so for us, these rights that were established as they were 
defined in terms of our federally determined identities beginning in 1855 are important to us of how we integrate and interact with the U.S. federal government. The second major part of the 1855 treaty was reserving land that was not open for American settlement, that was specifically and only for the Nez Perce to live upon. The Nez Perce lived in a vast territory. So our people occupied a broad area around 17 to 19 million acres from Kapkabala, what we now know as Boise, Idaho, was all occupied territory. Koitznema, the Weezer Valley, was a place where many of our families came from. Of course, our people ranged out into the, what we call Kusaina, Buffalo Country, you know, as far as the Dakotas. The Treaty of 1855 left a majority of this territory to the Nez Perce, all the way to the Bitterroot Mountains on the Montana and Idaho border, to southeast Washington and northeast Oregon, including the Wallowa Valley. This boundary largely followed natural borders and retained large tracts of the Nez Perce homeland. However, settlers coveted this land. The territory of the Nez Perce is rich and bountiful, and many things that Americans looked upon as valuable resources, riches of timber, gold, fish, game, everything that you could imagine, everything you could need. Settlers made multiple and increasing incursions upon the Nez Perce reserved land, and Congress did nothing to stop them. As the violations of the treaty grew, anger, unrest, and violence started to occur, and eventually a new treaty was drafted in 1863 that would establish straight lines of a drastically reduced Nez Perce reservation in central Idaho. When those first treaties were made, that's that was part of the discussion. It's like, how are you going to come here and, and mark the land? That's what they said, you're, you're putting lines on the land. There's no lines here. Most of the Nez Perce resisted this new treaty. What you have to understand about the Nez Perce is that they don't have one central authority. What we call the Nez Perce are actually a loosely associated group of bands with their own individual leaderships. However, in 1863, the United States found one Nez Perce chief named Lawyer who claimed he would sign for all of the Nez Perce. But that's not how Nez Perce leadership worked. And here's what Roger has to say. The people don't have to follow you. You're followed because they believe in you. The Wallowa Band and the Nez Perce believed in and followed old Chief Joseph. And after the United States' utter failure to hold up their end of the treaty, old Chief Joseph refused to sign, and he returned to the Wallowa Valley with his band. Once back in the Wallowa Valley, old Chief Joseph established a stone wall with poles interspersed throughout. This was old Chief Joseph's deadline. It divided the Wallowa Valley into a north and south side. The north for the Wallawa band of the Nez Perce, and the South for the settlers. And he made clear that no one was to cross it. Old Chief Joseph resisted borders, but he needed one nonetheless. Largely, settlers respected this. And in 1873, the United States President Ulysses S. Grant even listened to a petition that sought to create a specific reserve for the Wallawa band of the Nez Perce in the Wallawa Valley. Except there were several clerical errors in processing Ulysses S. Grant's executive order and... What ended up happening is Grant's executive order reserved the south side of the valley for the Wallowa Band under Chief Joseph, at this point, young Chief Joseph, the son of old Chief Joseph. The settlers of the region were intensely angry about this and protested the executive order, again, a clerical error, meant to actually reserve the north side of the valley for the Wallowa Band. And the opposition to the executive order became so much that eventually Grant dropped it. 
and the prospect of a Wallawa reservation was forgotten. band of the Nez Perce were able to live in something of a peace for a very short time with the settlers to their south. However, in 1876, a homesteader claimed that a Nez Perce man stole some of his horses and went out and killed him for it. This was not true. His horses had just been pastured a little farther away than he had thought. And when the settler community in Willowa Valley did not exact any justice upon this homesteader, Chief Joseph tried to seek his own. He created a council, and they had deliberations on whether justice should be met out to this homesteader. They came to the conclusion that the settlers would have to leave the valley for breaking the peace and causing violence and mayhem upon the Nez Perce people of the area. When Chief Joseph told the settlers in the Willowa Valley this, they instead resorted to bringing in the United States military. And in 1877, the military came and told the Wallawa Band of the Nez Perce that they had to leave the Wallawa Valley. The journey was a hard one, even at the beginning, before the violence started. And the first major hurdle that they had to jump across was crossing the Snake River to reach the reservation in Idaho. They crossed at a place called Doug's Bar, and while young Chief Joseph was able to get all of his people across without losing a single life, they did lose a large amount of their cattle and wealth as it was swept downstream. After crossing the Snake River at Doug's Bar, the Wallawa Band and the Nez Perce tried to make their way to the reservation in Idaho, but they would never arrive. At the Salmon River, there was a conflict between some of the younger, more hot-headed tribal members and some settlers in the area that led to a few deaths, and the anger of the American military once again brought on the Nez Perce of the Wallawa Valley. This is the beginning of the war, but can you really call it a war? I call it a retreat. I don't call it a battle. Some people call it a battle. But the whole time that the military was chasing us, our people did not want the war. They didn't want to fight. And they were running away from the military. They weren't looking for a battle. They were running away from the military. So I call it a retreat. This is Lee, a Nez Perce tribal elder who is a descendant of the Wallawa Band. Young Chief Joseph was not a war chief, he was a camp chief, and the people he was leading were mostly women, children, young men, and elders, just trying to make their way to the reservation that they did not know. Rather than submitting to the United States military and being sent off wherever they decided they wanted to send the Wallawa Bend of the Nez Perce, young Chief Joseph decided to try and make a play for Canada. In Canada was Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull was a Sioux chief. And it should be known that the Nez Perce and the Sioux were pretty fierce enemies that would constantly be fighting each other for resources on the Great Plain during the buffalo hunts. But now, with a much greater enemy at their doorstep, young Chief Joseph saw no other refuge than what once had been one of his greatest enemies. So began the flight of the Wallawa Band of the Nez Perce. wow, um, that's just that's just a lot to think about, just how two different tribes, two different peoples have been against each other for so long, but coming together due to this common enemy invading both of their lands 
and treating them as the same person. No longer are they the Sioux people or the Nez Perce people to the government. They're Native Americans. And at the end of the day, the ownership of land was more important than the lives of the people. Throughout the summer and into the fall, the Wallawa Band fought many battles against the United States military as they were chased east through Idaho and north up through Montana. I can't really speak to the nature of that chase, that flight, but our speakers can. It's just pitiful the way they were. They didn't even have shoes on their feet or coats or anything. It was in October, and if you go to Montana in October, it's snowing and cold, wind blowing hard all the time. And that's what my people went through. They were starving and freezing. They were made hungry. They just went through so much, and just elders that didn't want to be a burden to the rest of them, so they would go sit down by a tree or somewhere and, and just die. And yet they pushed on. It's the synergism of a community that believes in what they're doing, and they believe in in, in their life ways, and then leadership that circles them. That's how they were able for thousands of miles to be get as far as they got. Young Chief Joseph almost made it, but he was surrounded and out of options near the border of Canada, and he said he could not fight any longer. The military commander who was chasing him, told him that if he gave up, if he turned over his guns and said he would not fight anymore, that he would send him back to the Wallawa Valley and let him see his home. I think some part of Chief Joseph, though, knew that might not be the case, because before he turned over his guns, he did say to his people, if there are any of you that would like to make an escape tonight to cross the border and go meet Sitting Bull, you should do so. And so another man named White Bird led several people across the border and away from the American military. After turning in his guns, young Chief Joseph and the remaining of the Wallawa Band and the Nez Perce were ferried across the United States to several different places, including Oklahoma or Indian Territory, as was known in the time. Eventually, they were all split up and spread out across the reservations, and Chief Joseph, with a number of his fellows, ended up at the Colville Reservation in north-central Washington. Not too long before young Chief Joseph died, he witnessed one last incursion upon Nez Perce land. In 1897, the Dawes Act was passed. The Dawes Act essentially broke up reservation land communally held by the tribe to held by individual members of the tribe. It was intended to allow tribal members to have some form of enterprise on their lands, make farms, establish businesses, do other forms of individualistic American-style development, but it had disastrous results for the tribe. It didn't enable tribal members to prosper. Instead, it enabled the further theft of Native American land by white settlers. The new property laws were unfamiliar to the Nez Perce, and so many white settlers tricked them into selling their land. When Nez Perce people died, their land was divided up amongst their children until smaller and smaller plots were cheaper and more easily picked off by people desperate for money to get by in this new American world. It turned the Nez Perce Reservation into what we now call a checkerboard reservation, in which if you looked at a map of the ownership of land on the Nez Perce Reservation, you would see a checker or chessboard style configuration where this plot is owned by a Nez Perce tribal person or the tribe itself, this plot is owned by a white farmer, this plot owned by a homesteader, this plot somebody who just lives there, Nez Perce or not. Young Chief Joseph lived out the rest of his days on the Colville Reservation. He returned only once 
to the Wallawa Valley. He asked the settlers there if he might have a place there in his home, and they refused him. In 1904, young Chief Joseph dies, missing his homeland. Lee tells it best. Joseph died of a broken heart. Thank you for listening to Land, Water, Justice, Wallawa Valley. Tune in next time as we discuss the history of American settlement in the valley and follow the tragedy of 34 Chinese miners up the Snake River and into Hell's Canyon.